0: So at this time is the time for question and answers. And tonight we can start with question number six.
1: Dear Venerable Ajahn, I kept five precepts plus the precept of not eating afternoon meal for two years. But after those two years, I went back to eating in the evenings. I have tried twice unsuccessfully to go back to not eating after the noon meal. Could you please give me any advice to help me keep this precept? Thank you very much for offering this retreat. Sending gratitude and metta from Canada.
0: The Venerable Ajahnana answered that. So in terms of practicing virtue, caring for our sila, in the beginning, we practice the five precepts. And this is the qualities that can lead us to knowing and seeing the Dhamma. A stream mentor has the five precepts, needs to follow the five precepts. But sometimes we wish to increase our parami, to increase our spiritual virtues higher. So do the eight precepts. We can do the eight precepts perhaps one day per week not eating in the afternoon. We can eat perhaps around 12 or 12.30, or eat between 12 noon and 1 p.m. We can eat two meals a day. The meaning of this is to have an empty stomach in the evening, which is suitable for Dhamma practice. But you live in a cold country, so you need to make sure you have enough strength and energy to fight with the cold. So in the evening, you can eat some chocolate or cheese so that you have enough energy to fight with the painful feelings that arise in the body. In the beginning, perhaps you can eat some bread and gradually cut that off so that you're eating just two meals a day. You can try it for a week first and see how it goes. You can try eating more food at the midday meal And you can eat the kind of foods that stay in your stomach for a longer time. So you can gradually work your way towards this goal bit by bit. Uh, Don't worry about this too much. Because if we eat two meals a day and we are gaining weight, then that's not the right way. Some people eat three meals a day and they can reduce their weight. And if we eat just two meals a day and our weight is increasing, that can have negative effects on our health. So try to do this and build up to it one day at a time. It's something that one is capable of doing. It's not difficult.
1: What does Dhamma tell about self control?
0: So to speak about self control, so we have the sense of self. We have the sense of me and mine. And that sense of self is within the control of ignorance, craving and attachment. And when that energy of ignorance, craving, and attachment has more strength and energy, then the strength and energy of mindfulness is low. And in this case, then, one is not controlling the feelings in the heart, not controlling one's behavior of body and speech. This gives rise to heat and agitation, a lack of sila, a lack of virtue. If one wants to speak something, one speaks it. One wants to criticize, one criticizes. One wants to uh, lie, then one lies. One wants to speak harshly, one speaks harshly. If one's not happy with something, one can damage, destroy, hurt, or kill. So this is the not having the five precepts. And if there's no five precepts in the world, then it's difficult for people to live in the world. If there's no sila dhamma, if there's no quality of virtue in people's hearts, then people can't live together in the world. See, no one's in control. So to control the self in the beginning, it's about virtue, about sila. No matter how much we have greed, aversion, or delusion, we don't follow those qualities, we don't act on them. We're able to control our behavior. Venerable Ajahn Chah compared this to like a tiger or another fierce animal that's in a cage. And if we don't feed the tiger, don't give it food or water, it gradually gets weaker and weaker. It's like that with our defilements, our kilesas. We have them, but we don't follow them, don't act on them. And so in this way, peace arises in our behavior of body and speech then we're able to live together in society with happiness. And for instance, if there's a leader of a country that has a lot of power, but they lack self-control, then this is dangerous for the world. So we see that being able to control oneself has benefit. It has benefit in terms of our practice of mindfulness, collectedness, bringing the mind to firm establishment. This way we can control ourself in order to give rise to samadhi sometimes. And if we're not able to control ourselves or control the mind like that, then the mind is troubled and disturbed, chaotic, and this is dangerous as well. Because then if we're happy we think and proliferate about that And if we're unhappy, we think and proliferate about that without ceasing. This can give rise to danger. People can even kill based on this because they don't have control over their minds. So control over the mind has great benefit, immense benefit. If we control the mind, then the mind gives rise to samadhi, to peace. And we can learn about not-self the mind can become empty. When it's like that, the mind can become free of attachment temporarily. And if we practice like this, then we're able to meet with true happiness.
1: Dear Longpur, I understand many Ajahn's recommend staying with unpleasant emotions rather than running from them. When I've been in deep grief, if I cry, for example, I focus my attention on the sensations in the body, the eyes, the throat, the chest, and then the emotions pass away. I, however, feel that by doing this, I'm cutting their normal course and not letting them be for longer. I'm fine with this as I don't want my family to see me crying, but it would be nice to know if this practice is in line with mindfulness. and. I would also appreciate your guidance on practicing with painful emotions. Celia from Peru.
0: So with regard to this question, we look at, well, what is the natural way? What is the normal course for these things? Well, the natural way of ignorance is that based on a cause, craving arises, then there's attachment. There's birth, there's becoming, there's suffering, there's separation from the loved, not getting what one wants, getting what one doesn't want, and death. Not getting what one wants is suffering, getting what one doesn't want is suffering, separating from the loved is suffering. So this is the natural course that all arises from craving with ignorance at the head So we have this feeling of sadness or grief with crying, and this is based on a self, based on me and mine. So we practice to have more mindfulness, to observe the feelings in the body, in the chest, throat, and so on, in the eyes, different places in the body. So we have mindfulness with that, with that, feelings in the body with that sadness, that our mindfulness increases, becomes better. And so we see that we cling when the mindfulness is weak and the mind chases after the mood, chases after the emotion. But then when we investigate and have more mindfulness, we see what that emotion is arising from. We observe the feelings in the body We have mindfulness with that. We observe it closely. We give rise to knowing, clear awareness. And then in that way, that feeling of sadness can gradually reduce until it's gone. So this is training the mind to have more mindfulness. And this is a natural course of things as well. This is a natural way This is the natural way of knowing, of awareness. So to give rise to knowing like this, giving rise to awareness, we're able to abandon attachment and craving. We're able to abandon becoming, abandon suffering in the present moment. So there are these two ways. The way of ignorance leads to suffering. The way of knowing leads to less suffering, leads to letting go then we still might have sadness, but it's less. We can look at the example of Lady Wisaka from the time of the Buddha. She had a grandchild who died. Lady Wisaka was already a stream enter at that point, but she was very sad. But it's not that she didn't know that death was normal. She knew that death was normal, but she saw that this grandchild who died was very good. This grandchild helped with these uh, acts of merit, helping arrange to do merit. And so it was a real shame that this grandchild died. And so Lady Wisaka wasn't able to abandon that sad feeling in her heart. And she knew that she had to seek out the Buddha. So the Buddha taught that if you have a hundred loved ones, then you'll be sad a hundred times due to the nature of separation from the loved. Lady Wisaka had mindfulness arise. She was was able to abandon that sad feeling and accept the truth. So this way of practice that you mentioned is correct. You're able to cultivate the recollection of mindfulness of the body and mind in order to reduce the sad feeling and to have the sad feeling go away more quickly and to have more mindfulness as well. So to have the sad feeling gradually reduced bit by bit, this is correct. This is training in mindfulness. With regard to the second question, whether it's pain in the body or mind, we have mindfulness with that. If it's a bodily pain, for instance, if we sit for a long time and pain arises, And we watch that feeling, we observe that feeling. We see that when we change posture, the feeling reduces. And we're able to separate the mind from the sense experience. And when we're able to separate the mind like this, then we train the mind to have more strength and energy. And when it comes to painful feelings in the mind and heart, for instance, not liking something, a feeling of stress or suffering, we have mindfulness with that very feeling. If we have a lot of wisdom, we're able to see that feeling in the heart, and we're able to see that feeling as not me, not mine, that I am not that feeling, and that feeling isn't me. In this way, mindfulness arises, samadhi arises, and suffering reduces.
1: How is form not self from anonymous?
0: So you ask, how is form not self? So we see that this word form, rupa, which can also translate as materiality, that rupa or form is anything that must degrade and pass away. So it's part of nama and rupa. We see rupa as the body. It's also part of the five khandhas. It's also things that we can see. So we ask, well, how is form self? How is that? Why is form self? So we can study and investigate about this. Ever since we're born, we feel that form is self. We feel that itself all the time. When we're a kid, we think it's self. We grow up, we think it's self. We're old and we think it's self. When we get sick, we think that we're sick. When we die, we think that we die. It's because this feeling is deep within the heart. This feeling of self is deeply embedded. It's there uh, continuously. So we ask, well, why is form not self? It's because we feel that way about it. So when the Buddha attained self-awakening, he saw that form is something not lasting, unstable. It's suffering. It's not self. So that form is something that can't last. It's unstable. It's not self. And when Venerable Anya Kundanya saw the Dhamma, he saw not self. He saw that form is not self. This was something he had been seeking for, for a long time, but he had not yet understood it. He had Samadhi already, but he didn't yet have wisdom. Then the Buddha taught that everything that is of the nature to arise is of the nature to pass away. So if the mind is still, the mind peaceful and collected in the samadhi, the mind can separate out from form. And we see that the mind, still and peaceful, can contemplate like this, can see clearly that it's something that arises and ceases. So everything that arises and ceases, that degrades, is not self. So this knowing arises, one can understand deeply, and one can see this, can see the Dhamma, see that rupa and nama form and mentality is all impermanent, unstable. This is seeing the Dhamma, knowing the truth, attaining to the Dhamma, that form is not self. We see that form can't be self because it's impermanent, it doesn't last. We can ask, well, does it have any essence there? So if we understand this through thinking, we see that it's not self. We see that rupa, physical form, it's composed of these four elements that are of the nature to degrade and fall apart. This wisdom is coming from thinking, from memory. But when we think and recall like this, it can help our clinging to become lighter, to reduce our clinging, to help us see clearly. In order to truly see clearly, however, we need to have samadhi to give rise to knowledge and wisdom, to see clearly that it's not self. This is seeing the Dhamma. Venerable Ajahn Chah would teach that seeing the self as self is to be lost in self, to think that there really is a self. But to see not self is to see the self according to truth, to see that form, or to see form according to truth, to see that it's not, there's nothing there, there's no self there. So seeing the Dhamma. For instance, when anger arises, we have a sense of self with that. But if we have mindfulness and wisdom there, we can ask, well, who does this anger belong to? Where is this anger? Where is the self that has this anger? And when this wisdom is there, this knowledge is there, then anger can go away or be abandoned. The same with greed. If we have the kind of greed we want, to own everything in the world. we can ask, well, where is the self that's greedy? Who owns this greed? Wisdom arises, and then greed reduces right there. And also with aging, who is it that ages? Where is the owner of aging? See that things are of the nature to age. It's uh, just nature. So we see it's important to see not self, Because when we can see not-self, then we're able to reduce our suffering. And when we have the sense of self, then we suffer. We see that in truth, in nature, there's no self there to be found. So now this time we can continue to meditate together.